The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 12 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter 12 The Liverpool Mystery. A title, a foreign title, I mean, is always very useful for purposes of swindles and frauds, remarked the old man in the corner to Polly one day. The cleverest robberies of modern times were perpetrated lately in Vienna by a man who dubbed himself Lord Seymour, whilst over here the same class of thief calls himself Count Something ending in O, or Prince the Other ending in Off. Fortunately for our hotel and lodging housekeepers over here, she replied, they are beginning to be more alive to the ways of foreign swindlers, and look upon all titled gentry who speak broken English as possible swindlers or thieves the result sometimes being exceedingly unpleasant to the real grand seigneurs who honour this country at times with their visits, replied the man in the corner. Now take the case of Prince Semionitz, a man whose sixteen quarterings are duly recorded in Gotha, who carried enough luggage with him to pay for the use of every room in a hotel for at least a week, whose gold cigarette case with diamond and turquoise ornament was actually stolen without his taking the slightest trouble to try and recover it. That same man was undoubtedly looked upon with suspicion, by the manager of the Liverpool Northwestern Hotel, from the moment that his secretary, a dapper, somewhat vulgar little Frenchman, bespoke on behalf of his employer, with himself and a valet, the best suite of rooms the hotel contained. Obviously those suspicions were unfounded, for the little secretary, as soon as Prince Semionitz had arrived, deposited with the manager a pile of banknotes, also papers and bonds, the value of which would exceed tenfold the most outrageous bill that could possibly be placed before the noble visitor. Moreover, Monsieur Albert Lambert explained that the prince, who only meant to stay in Liverpool a few days, was on his way to Chicago, where he wished to visit Princess Anna Semionitz, his sister, who was married to Mr. Gerwan, the great copper king and multimillionaire. Yet, as I told you before, in spite of all these undoubted securities, suspicion of the wealthy Russian prince lurked in the minds of most Liverpoolians who came in business contact with him. He had been at Northwestern two days when he sent his secretary to Winslow and Vassal, the jewellers of Bold Street, with a request that they would kindly send a representative round to the hotel with some nice pieces of jewellery, diamonds and pearls chiefly, that he was desirous of taking as a present to his sister in Chicago. Mr. Winslow took the order from M. Albert with a pleasant bow. Then he went to his inner office and consulted with his partner, Mr. Vassal, as to the best course to adopt. Both the gentlemen were desirous of doing business, for business had been very slack lately, neither wished to refuse a possible customer or to offend Mr. Pettit, the manager of the Northwestern, who had recommended them to the prince. 
but that foreign title and the vulgar little French secretary stuck in the throats of the two pompous and worthy Liverpool jewellers, and together they agreed, firstly, that no credit should be given, and secondly, that if a cheque or even a banker's draft were tendered, the jewels were not to be given up until that cheque or bank draft was cashed. Then came the question as to who should take the jewels to the hotel. It was altogether against business etiquette for the senior partners to do such errands themselves. Moreover, it was thought that it would be easier for a clerk to explain, without giving undue offence, that he could not take the responsibility for a cheque or draft, without having cashed it previously to giving up the jewels. Then there was the question of the probable necessity of conferring in a foreign tongue. The head assistant, Charles Needham, who had been in the employ of Winslow and Vassal for over twelve years, was, in true British fashion, ignorant of any language save his own. It was therefore decided to dispatch Mr. Schwartz, a young German clerk lately arrived on the delicate errand. Mr. Schwartz was Mr. Winslow's nephew and godson, a sister of that gentleman having married the head of the great German firm of Schwartz and Company Silversmiths of Hamburg and Berlin. The young man had soon become a great favourite with his uncle, whose heir he would presumably be, as Mr. Winslow had no children. At first Mr. Vassal made some demur about sending Mr. Schwartz with so many valuable jewels alone in a city which he had not yet had time to study thoroughly, but finally he allowed himself to be persuaded by his senior partner, and a fine selection of necklaces, pendants, bracelets, and rings, amounting in value to over sixteen thousand pounds having been made, it was decided that Mr. Schwartz should go to the Northwestern in a cab the next day at about three o'clock in the afternoon. This he accordingly did, the following day being a Thursday. Business went on in the shop as usual, under the direction of the head assistant, until about seven o'clock, when Mr. Winslow returned from his club, where he usually spent an hour over the papers every afternoon, and at once asked for his nephew. To his astonishment, Mr. Needham informed him that Mr. Schwartz had not yet returned. This seemed a little strange, and Mr. Winslow, with a slightly anxious look in his face, went into the inner office in order to consult his junior partner. Mr. Vassal offered to go round to the hotel and interview Mr. Pettit. "'I was beginning to get anxious myself,' he said, but did not quite like to say so. I have been in over half an hour, hoping every moment that you would come in, and that perhaps you would give me some reassuring news. I thought that perhaps you had met Mr. Schwartz, and were coming back together.' However, Mr. Vassal walked round to the hotel, and interviewed the hall porter. The latter perfectly remembered Mr. Schwartz sending in his card to Prince Semionitz. "'At what time was that?' asked Mr. Vassal. "'About ten minutes past three, sir, when he came in. It was about an hour later when he left.' "'When he left?' gasped, more than usual, Mr. Vassal. "'Yes, sir. Mr. Schwartz left here about a quarter before four, sir.' "'Are you quite sure?' "'Quite sure. Mr. Pettit was in the hall when he left, and he asked him something about business.' Mr. Schwartz laughed and said, "'Not bad. I hope there's nothing wrong, sir,' added the man. "'Oh, er, nothing. Thank you. Can I see Mr. Pettit?' "'Certainly, sir.' Mr. Pettit, the manager of the hotel, shared Mr. Vassal's anxiety. Immediately he heard that the young German had not yet returned home. "'I spoke to him a little before four o'clock. We had just switched on the electric light, which we always do these winter months at that hour. But I shouldn't worry myself, Mr. Vassal. The young man may have seen to some business on his way home. You'll probably find him in when you go back.' Apparently somewhat reassured, Mr. Vassal thanked Mr. Pettit and hurried back to the shop, only to find that Mr. Schwartz had not returned, though now it was close on eight o'clock. Mr. Winslow looked so haggard and upset that it would have been cruel to heap reproaches upon his other troubles, or to utter so much as the faintest suspicion that young Schwartz's permanent disappearance, with sixteen thousand in jewels and money, was within the bounds of probability. There was one chance left, but under the circumstances a very slight one, indeed. 
The Winslow's private house was up in the Birkenhead end of town. Young Schwartz had been living with them ever since his arrival in Liverpool, and he may have, either not feeling well or for some other reason, gone straight home without calling at the shop. It was unlikely, as valuable jewelry was never kept at the private house, but it just might have happened. "'It would be useless,' continued the man in the corner, and decidedly uninteresting, were I to relate to you Messrs. Winslow's and Vassal's further anxieties with regard to the missing young man. Suffice it to say that on reaching his private house, Mr. Winslow found that his godson had neither returned nor sent any telegraphic message of any kind. Not wishing to needlessly alarm his wife, Mr. Winslow made an attempt at eating his dinner. But directly after that he hurried back to the Northwestern Hotel and asked to see Prince Semionet. The prince was at the theatre with his secretary, and probably would not be home until nearly midnight. Mr. Winslow, then, not knowing what to think, nor yet what to fear, and in spite of the horror he felt of giving publicity to his nephew's disappearance, thought it his duty to go round to the police station and interview the inspector. It is wonderful how quickly news of that type travels in a large city like Liverpool. Already the morning papers of the following day were full of the latest sensation, mysterious disappearance of a well-known tradesman. Mr. Winslow found a copy of the paper containing the sensational announcement on his breakfast-table. It lay side by side with a letter addressed to him in his nephew's handwriting, which had been posted in Liverpool. Mr. Winslow placed that letter, written to him by his nephew, into the hands of the police. Its contents, therefore, quickly became public property. The astounding statements made therein by Mr. Schwartz created, in quiet business like Liverpool, a sensation which has seldom been equalled. It appears that the young fellow did call on Prince Semionitz at a quarter past three on Wednesday, December 10th, with a bag full of jewels, amounting in value to some sixteen thousand pounds. The prince duly admired, and finally selected from among the ornaments, a necklace, pendant, and bracelet, the whole being priced by Mr. Schwartz, according to his instructions, at ten thousand five hundred pounds. Prince Semionitz was most prompt and businesslike in his dealings. "'You will require immediate payment for these, of course,' he said in perfect English, and I know your businessmen prefer solid cash to checks, especially when dealing with foreigners. I always provide myself with plenty of Bank of England notes in consequence, he added with a pleasant smile, as ten thousand five hundred in gold would perhaps be a little inconvenient to carry. If you will kindly make out the receipt, my secretary, Monsieur Lambert, will settle all business matters with you. He thereupon took the jewels he had selected and locked them up in his dressing-case, the beautiful silver fillings of which Mr. Schwartz just caught a short glimpse of. Then, having been accommodated with paper and ink, the young jeweller made out the account and receipt, whilst M. Lambert, the secretary, counted out before him the one hundred and five crisp Bank of England notes of one hundred pounds each. Then, with a final bow to his exceedingly urbane and eminently satisfactory customer, Mr. Schwartz took his leave. In the hall he saw and spoke to Mr. Pettit, and then he went out into the street. He had just left the hotel, and was about to cross towards St. George's Hall, when a gentleman, in a magnificent fur coat, stepped quickly out of a cab which had been stationed near the curb, and touching him lightly upon the shoulder, said with an unmistakable air of authority, at the same time handing him a card, "'That is my name. I must speak with you immediately.' Schwartz glanced at the card, and by the light of the arc lamps above his head, read on it the name of Dmitri Slaviansky Bergrenev, de la troisième section de la police impériale de S.M. Lazar. Quickly, the owner of the unpronounceable name and the significant title pointed to the cab from which he had just alighted, and Schwartz, whose every suspicion, with regard to his princely customer, bristled up in one moment, clutched his bag, and followed his imposing interlocutor 
As soon as they were both comfortably seated in the cab, the latter began, with courteous apology, in broken but fluent English. "'I must ask your pardon, sir, for thus trespassing upon your valuable time, and I certainly should not have done so but for the certainty that our interests in a certain matter which I have in hand are practically identical, in so far that we both should wish to outwit a clever rogue.' Instinctively, and his mind full of terrible apprehension, Mr. Schwartz's hand wandered to his pocket-book, filled to overflowing with the bank-notes which he had so lately received from the prince. "'Ah, I see,' interposed the courteous Russian, with a smile. "'He has played the confidence trick on you, with the usual addition of so many so-called bank-notes.' "'So-called?' gasped the unfortunate young man. "'I don't think I often err in my estimate of my own countrymen,' continued M. Burgonef. "'I have vast experience, you must remember. Therefore, I doubt if I am doing M. Er... What does he call himself? Prince something?' and injustice if I assert, even without handling those crisp bits of paper you have in your pocket-book, that no bank would exchange them for gold. Remembering his uncle's suspicions and his own, Mr. Schwartz cursed himself for his blindness and folly in accepting notes so easily without for a moment imagining that they might be false. Now, with every one of those suspicions fully on the alert, he felt the bits of paper with nervous, anxious fingers, while the impenetrable Russian calmly struck a match. "'See here,' he said, pointing to one of the notes, "'the shape of that W in the signature of the chief cashier. "'I am not an English police officer, "'but I could pick out that spurious W among a thousand genuine ones. "'You see, I have seen a good many.' "'Now, of course, poor young Schwartz had not seen very many Bank of England notes. "'He could not have told whether one W in Mr. Bowen's signature is better than another, "'but though he did not speak English nearly as fluently as his pompous interlocutor, he understood every word of the appalling statement the latter had just made. "'Then the prince,' he said, "'at the hotel?' "'It is no more prince than you and I, my dear sir,' concluded the gentleman of His Imperial Majesty's police calmly. "'And the jewels, Mr. Winslow's jewels?' "'With the jewels there may be a chance—oh, a mere chance. Those forged banknotes which you accepted so trustingly may prove the means of recovering your property.' "'How?' The penalty of forging and circulating spurious banknotes is very heavy. You know that. The fear of seven years' penile servitude will act as a wonderful sedative upon that, er, prince's joyful mood. He would give up the jewels to me all right enough. Never you fear. He knows, added the Russian officer grimly, that there are plenty of old scores to settle up with the additional one of forged banknotes. Our interests, you see, are identical. May I rely on your cooperation? "'Oh, I will do as you wish,' said the delighted young German. "'Mr. Winslow and Mr. Vassal, they trusted me, and I have been such a fool. I hope it is not too late.' "'I think not,' said Mr. Burgernuff, his hand already on the door of the cab. "'Though I have been talking to you, I have kept an eye on the hotel, and our friend the Prince has not yet gone out. We are accustomed, you know, to have eyes everywhere, we of the Russian secret police. I don't think that I will ask you to be present at the confrontation.' "'Perhaps you will wait for me in the cab. "'There is a nasty fog outside, and you will be more private. "'Will you give me those beautiful banknotes? "'Thank you. "'Don't be anxious. "'I won't be long.' "'He lifted his hat and slipped the notes into the inner pocket of his magnificent fur coat. "'As he did so, Mr. Schwartz caught sight of a rich uniform and a wide sash, "'which no doubt was destined to carry additional moral weight with the clever rogue upstairs. "'Then His Imperial Majesty's police officer stepped quickly out of the cab.' and Mr. Schwartz was left alone. End of chapter 12
Chapter Thirteen of the Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter Thirteen: A Cunning Rascal. Yes, left severely alone. Continued the man in the corner with a sarcastic chuckle. So severely alone, in fact that one quarter of an hour after another passed by, and still the magnificent police officer in the gorgeous uniform did not return. Then, when it was too late, Schwartz cursed himself once again for the double-dyed idiot that he was. He had been only too ready to believe that Prince Semionitz was a liar and a rogue, and under these unjust suspicions he had fallen an all-too-easy prey to one of the most cunning rascals he had ever come across. An inquiry from the hall-porter at the Northwestern elicited the fact that no such personage as Mr. Schwartz described had entered the hotel. The young man asked to see Prince Semionitz, hoping against hope that all was not yet lost. The prince received him most courteously. He was dictating some letters to his secretary, while the valet was in the next room preparing his master's evening clothes. Mr. Schwartz found it very difficult to explain what he actually did want. There stood the dressing-case in which the prince had locked up the jewels, and there the bag from which the secretary had taken the banknotes. After much hesitation on Schwartz's part and much impatience on that of the prince, the young man blurted out the whole story of the so-called Russian police officer whose card he still held in his hand. The prince, it appears, took the whole thing wonderfully good-naturedly. No doubt he thought the jeweler a hopeless fool. He showed him the jewels, the receipt he held, and also a large bundle of banknotes similar to those Schwartz had with such culpable folly given to the clever rascal in the cab. "'I pay all my bills with Bank of England notes, Mr. Schwartz. It would have been wiser, perhaps, if you had spoken to the manager of the hotel about me, before you were so ready to believe any cock-and-bull story about my supposed rogueries.' Finally he placed a small sixteen-month volume before the young jeweller, and said, with a pleasant smile, "'If people in this country who are in a large way of business, and are therefore likely to come in contact with people of foreign nationality,' or to study these little volumes before doing business with any foreigner who claims a title, much disappointment and a great loss would often be saved. Now in this case have you looked up page 797 of this little volume of Gotha's Almanac? You would have seen my name in it, and known from the first that the so-called Russian detective was a liar. There was nothing more to be said, and Mr. Schwartz left the hotel. No doubt, now that he had been hopelessly duped, he dared not go home, and half hoped by communicating with the police that they might succeed in arresting the thief before he had time to leave Liverpool. He interviewed Detective Inspector Watson, and was at once confronted with the awful difficulty which would make the recovery of the banknotes practically hopeless. He had never had the time or opportunity of jotting down the numbers of the notes. Mr. Winslow, though terribly wrathful against his nephew, did not wish to keep him out of his home. As soon as he had received Schwartz's letter, he traced him, with Inspector Watson's help, to his lodgings in North Street, where the unfortunate young man meant to remain hidden until the terrible storm had blown over, or perhaps until the thief had been caught red-handed with the booty still in his hands. This happy event, needless to say, never did occur, though the police made every effort to trace the man who had decoyed Schwartz into the cab. His appearance was such an uncommon one, it seems most unlikely that no one in Liverpool should have noticed him after he left that cab. The wonderful fur coat, the long beard, all must have been noticeable, even though it was past four o'clock on a somewhat foggy December afternoon. But every investigation proved futile. 
No one answering Schwartz's description of the man had been seen anywhere. The papers continued to refer to the case as the Liverpool Mystery. Scotland Yard sent Mr. Fairburn down, the celebrated detective, at the request of the Liverpool police, to help in the investigations, but nothing availed. Prince Semionitz, with his suite, left Liverpool, and he who had attempted to blacken his character, and had succeeded in robbing Messrs. Winslow and Vassal of ten thousand five hundred pounds, had completely disappeared. The man in the corner readjusted his collar and necktie, which, during the narrative of this interesting mystery, had worked its way up his long, crane-like neck, under his large, flappy ears. His costume of check tweed of a peculiarly loud pattern had tickled the fancy of some of the waitresses, who were standing gazing at him and giggling in one corner. This evidently made him nervous. He gazed up very meekly at Polly, looking for all the world like a bald-headed adjutant dressed for a holiday. Of course, all sorts of theories of the theft got about at first, one of the most popular and at the same time most quickly exploded, being that young Schwartz had told a cock-and-bull story and was the actual thief himself. However, as I said before, that was quickly exploded, as Mr. Schwartz, Sr., a very wealthy merchant, never allowed his son's carelessness to be a serious loss to his kind employers. As soon as he thoroughly grasped all the circumstances of the extraordinary case, he drew a cheque for ten thousand five hundred pounds and remitted it to Messrs. Winslow and Vassal. It was just, but it was also high-minded. All Liverpool knew of the generous action, as Mr. Winslow took care that it should, and any evil suspicion regarding young Mr. Schwartz vanished as quickly as it had come. Then, of course, there was the theory about the prince and his suite, and to this day I fancy there are plenty of people in Liverpool, and also in London, who declare that the so-called Russian police officer was a confederate. No doubt that theory was very plausible, and Messrs. Winslow and Vassal spent a good deal of money in trying to prove a case against the Russian prince. Very soon, however, that theory was also bound to collapse. Mr. Fairburn, whose reputation as an investigator of crime waxes in direct inverted ratio to his capacities, did hit upon the obvious course of interviewing the managers of the larger London and Liverpool agents de charge. He soon found that Prince Semionitz had converted a great deal of Russian and French money into English banknotes since his arrival in this country. More than thirty thousand pounds in good, solid, honest money was traced to the pockets of the gentleman with the sixteen quarterings. It seemed, therefore, more than improbable that a man who was obviously fairly wealthy would risk imprisonment and hard labor, if not worse, for the sake of increasing his fortune by ten thousand pounds. However, the theory of the prince's guilt has taken firm root in the dull minds of our police authorities. They have had every information with regard to Prince Semionitz's antecedents from Russia. His position, his wealth, have been placed above suspicion, and yet they suspect and go on suspecting him or his secretary. They have communicated with the police of every European capital, and while they still hope to obtain sufficient evidence against those they suspect, they calmly allow the guilty to enjoy the fruit of his clever roguery. "'The guilty?' said Polly. "'Who do you think?' "'Who do I think knew at that moment that young Schwartz had money in his possession?' he said excitedly, wriggling in his chair like a jack-in-the-box. "'Obviously someone was guilty of that theft who knew that Schwartz had gone to interview a rich Russian, and would, in all probability, return with a large sum of money in his possession.' "'Who, indeed, but the prince and his secretary?' she argued. "'But just now you said—' "'Just now I said that the police were determined to find the prince and his secretary guilty.' They did not look further than their own stumpy noses. Messrs. Winslow and Vassal spent money with a free hand in those investigations. Mr. Winslow, as the senior partner, stood to lose over nine thousand pounds by that robbery. Now with Mr. Vassal it was different. 
When I saw how the police went on blundering in this case, I took the trouble to make certain inquiries. The whole thing interested me so much, and I learnt all that I wished to know. I found out, namely, that Mr. Vassal was very much a junior partner in the firm, that he only drew ten percent of the profits, having been promoted lately to a partnership from having been senior assistant. Now the police did not take the trouble to find that out. But you don't mean that— I mean that in all cases where robbery affects more than one person, the first thing to find out is whether it affects the second party equally with the first. I proved that to you, didn't I, over the robbery in Fillimore Terrace? There, as here, one of the two parties stood to lose very little in comparison with the other. Even then, she began, wait a moment, for I found out something more. The moment I had ascertained that Mr. Vassal was not drawing more than about five hundred pounds a year from the business profits, I tried to ascertain at what rate he lived and what were his chief vices. I found that he kept a fine house in Albert Terrace. Now the rents of those houses are two hundred fifty pounds a year. Therefore, speculation, horse-racing, or some sort of gambling must help to keep up that establishment. Speculation and most forms of gambling are synonymous with debt and ruin. It is only a question of time. Whether Mr. Vassal was in debt or not at the time, that I cannot say, but this I do know, that ever since that unfortunate loss to him of about one thousand pounds, he has kept his house in nicer style than before, and he now has a good banking account at the Lancashire and Liverpool Bank, which he opened a year after his heavy loss. But it must have been very difficult, argued Polly. What, he said, to have planned out the whole thing? For carrying it out was mere child's play. He had twenty-four hours in which to put his plan into execution. Why, what was there to do? Firstly, to go to a local printer in some sort of out-of-the-way part of town and get him to print a few cards with the high-sounding name. That, of course, is done while you wait. Beyond that there was the purchase of a good second-hand uniform, fur coat, and a beard and a wig from a customer's. No, no, the execution was not difficult. It was the planning of it all, the daring that was so fine. Schwartz, of course, was a foreigner. He had only been in England a little over a fortnight. Vassal's broken English misled him. Probably he did not know the junior partner very intimately. I have no doubt that but for his uncle's absurd British prejudice and suspicions against the Russian prince, Schwartz would not have been so ready to believe in the latter's roguery. As I said, it would be a great boon if English tradesmen studied Gotha more, but it was clever, wasn't it? I couldn't have done it much better myself. That last sentence was so characteristic. Before Polly could think of some plausible argument against his theory, he was gone, and she was trying vainly to find another solution to the Liverpool mystery. End of chapter 13Chapter 14 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzy. Chapter 14 The Edinburgh Mystery. The man in the corner had not enjoyed his lunch. Miss Polly Burton could see that he had something on his mind, for even before he began to talk that morning, he was fidgeting with his bit of string, and setting all her nerves on the jar. "'Have you ever felt real sympathy with a criminal or a thief?' he asked her after a while. "'Only once, I think,' she replied. "'And then I am not quite sure that the unfortunate woman who did enlist my sympathies was the criminal you make her out to be.' "'You mean the heroine of the York mystery?' he replied blandly. "'I know that you tried very hard that time to discredit the only possible version of that mysterious murder, the version which is my own.' 
Now I am equally sure that you have at the present moment no more notion as to who killed and robbed poor Lady Donaldson in Charlotte Square, Edinburgh, than the police have themselves, and yet you are fully prepared to poo-poo my arguments and to disbelieve my version of the mystery. Such is the lady journalist's mind. "'If you have some cock-and-bull story to explain that extraordinary case,' she retorted, "'of course I shall disbelieve it. Certainly, if you are going to try and enlist my sympathies on behalf of Edith Crawford, I can assure you you won't succeed.' "'Well, I don't know that that is altogether my intention. I see you are interested in the case. But I dare say you don't remember all the circumstances. You must forgive me if I repeat that which you know already. If you have ever been to Edinburgh at all, you will have heard of Graham's Bank, and Mr. Andrew Graham, the present head of the firm, is undoubtedly one of the most prominent notabilities of modern Athens.' The man in the corner took two or three photos from his pocket-book and placed them before the young girl, then, pointing at them with his long bony finger, that he said is mr elphinstone graham the eldest son a typical young scotchman as you see and this is david graham the second son polly looked more closely at this last photo and saw before her a young face upon which some lasting sorrow seemed already to have left its mark the face was delicate and thin the features pinched and the eyes seemed almost unnaturally large and prominent he was deformed commented the man in the corner in answer to the girl's thoughts and, as such, an object of pity, and even of repugnance to most of his friends. There was also a good deal of talk in Edinburgh society as to his mental condition, his mind, according to many intimate friends of the Grahams, being at times decidedly unhinged. Be that as it may, I fancy that his life must have been a very sad one. He had lost his mother when quite a baby, and his father seemed, strangely enough, to have an almost unconquerable dislike towards him. Every one got to know presently of David Graham's sad position in his father's own house, and also of the great affection lavished upon him by his godmother, Lady Donaldson, who was a sister of Mr. Graham's. She was a lady of considerable wealth, being the widow of Sir George Donaldson, the great distiller, but she seems to have been decidedly eccentric. Latterly she had astonished all her family, who were rigid Presbyterians, by announcing her intention of embracing the Roman Catholic faith, and then retiring to the convent of St. Augustine's at Newton Abbott in Devonshire. She had sole and absolute control of the vast fortune which a doting husband had bequeathed to her. Clearly, therefore, she was at liberty to bestow it upon a Devonshire convent if she chose. But this, evidently, was not altogether her intention. I told you how fond she was of her deformed godson, did I not? Being a bundle of eccentricities, she had many hobbies, none more pronounced than the fixed determination to see before retiring from the world altogether, David Graham happily married. Now it appears that David Graham, ugly, deformed, half-demented as he was, had fallen desperately in love with Miss Edith Crawford, daughter of the late Dr. Crawford of Prince's Gardens. The young lady, however, very naturally, perhaps, fought shy of David Graham, who, about this time, certainly seemed very queer and morose. But Lady Donaldson, with characteristic determination, seems to have made up her mind to melt Miss Crawford's heart towards her unfortunate nephew. On October the 2nd last, at a family party given by Mr. Graham in his fine mansion in Charlotte Square, Lady Donaldson openly announced her intention of making over, by deed of gift, to her nephew, David Graham, certain property, money, and shares amounting in total value to the sum of £100,000, and also her magnificent diamonds, which were worth £50,000, for the use of said David's wife. Keith McFinley, a lawyer of Prince's Street, received the next day instructions for drawing up the necessary deed of gift, which she pledged herself to sign the day of her godson's wedding. 
A week later, the Scotsman contained the following paragraph. A marriage is arranged and will shortly take place between David, younger son of Andrew Graham Esquire, of Charlotte Square, Edinburgh, and Docknakirk, Perthshire, and Edith Lillian, only surviving daughter of the late Dr. Kenneth Crawford, of Prince's Gardens. In Edinburgh society, comments were loud and various upon the forthcoming marriage, and, on the whole, these comments were far from complimentary to the families concerned. I do not think that the Scotch are a particularly sentimental race, but there was such obvious buying, selling, and bargaining about this marriage that Scottish chivalry rose in revolt at the thought. Against that, the three people most concerned seemed perfectly satisfied. David Graham was positively transformed. His moroseness was gone from him. He lost his queer ways and wild manners, and became gentle and affectionate in the midst of this great and unexpected happiness. Miss Edith Crawford ordered her trousseau, and talked of the diamonds to her friends, and Lady Donaldson was only waiting for the consummation of this marriage, her heart's desire, before she finally retired from the world, at peace with it and with herself. The deed of gift was ready for signature on the wedding day, which was fixed for November 7th, and Lady Donaldson took up her abode temporarily in her brother's house in Charlotte Square. Mr. Graham gave a large ball on October 23rd. Special interest is attached to this ball, from the fact that for this occasion Lady Donaldson insisted that David's future wife should wear the magnificent diamonds which were soon to become hers. They were, it seems, superb, and became Miss Crawford's stately beauty to perfection. The ball was a brilliant success, the last guest leaving at 4 a.m., the next day it was the universal topic of conversation, and the day after that, when Edinburgh unfolded the late editions of its morning papers, it learned with horror and dismay that Lady Donaldson had been found murdered in her room, and that the celebrated diamonds had been stolen. Hardly had the beautiful little city, however, recovered from this awful shock, than its newspapers had another thrilling sensation ready for their readers. Already all Scotch and English papers had mysteriously hinted at startling information obtained by the procurator fiscal and at an impending sensational arrest. Then the announcement came, and everyone in Edinburgh read, horror-struck and aghast, that the sensational arrest was none other than that of Miss Edith Crawford for murder and robbery, both so daring and horrible that reason refused to believe that a young lady, born and bred in the best social circle, should have conceived, much less executed, so heinous a crime. She had been arrested in London at the Midland Hotel, and brought to Edinburgh, where she was judicially examined, bail being refused. End of chapter 14「Chapter 15 of the Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE OLD MAN IN THE CORNER by Baroness Orzee CHAPTER Fifteen: A TERRIBLE PLIGHT Little more than a fortnight after that, Edith Crawford was duly committed to stand her trial before the High Court of Justiciary. She had pleaded not guilty at the pleading diet, and her defence was entrusted to Sir James Fenwick, one of the most eminent advocates at the criminal bar. "'Strange to say,' continued the man in the corner after a while, "'public opinion from the first went dead against the accused.' The public is absolutely like a child, perfectly irresponsible and wholly illogical. It argued that since Miss Crawford had already been ready to contract a marriage with a half-demented, deformed creature for the sake of his one hundred thousand pounds, she must have been equally ready to murder and rob an old lady for the sake of fifty thousand pounds worth of jewellery 
without the encumbrance of so undesirable a husband. Perhaps the great sympathy aroused in the popular mind for David Graham had much to do with this ill-feeling against the accused. David Graham had, by this cruel and dastardly murder, lost the best, if not the only friend he possessed. He had also lost, at one fell swoop, the large fortune which Lady Donaldson had been about to assign to him. The deed of the gift had never been signed, and the old lady's vast wealth, instead of enriching her favorite nephew, was distributed, since she had made no will, amongst her heirs at law. And now, to crown this long chapter of sorrow, David Graham saw the girl he loved accused of the awful crime which had robbed him of friend and fortune. It was therefore with an unmistakable thrill of righteous satisfaction that Edinburgh society saw this mercenary girl in so terrible a plight. I was immensely interested in the case, and journeyed down to Edinburgh in order to get a good view of the chief actors in the thrilling drama which was about to be unfolded there. I succeeded, I generally do, in securing one of the front seats among the audience, and was already comfortably installed in my place in court when through the trap-door I saw the head of the prisoner emerge. She was very becomingly dressed in deep black, and led by two policemen she took her place in the dock. Sir James Fenwick shook hands with her very warmly, and I could almost hear him instilling words of comfort into her. The trial lasted six clear days, during which time more than forty persons were examined for the prosecution, and as many for the defence. But the most interesting witnesses were certainly the two doctors, the maid Tremlett, Campbell, the high street jeweller, and David Graham. There was, of course, a great deal of medical evidence to go through. Poor Lady Donaldson had been found with a silk scarf tied tightly around her neck, her face showing even to the inexperienced eye every symptom of strangulation. Then Tremlett, Lady Donaldson's confidential maid, was called. Closely examined by Crown Counsel, she gave an account of the ball at Charlotte Square on the 23rd, and the wearing of the jewels by Miss Crawford on that occasion. "'I helped Miss Crawford on with the tiara over her hair,' she said, "'and my lady put the two necklaces round Miss Crawford's neck herself. There were also some beautiful brooches, bracelets, and earrings. At four o'clock in the morning, when the ball was over, Miss Crawford brought the jewels back to my lady's room. My lady had already gone to bed, and I had put out the electric light, as I was going, too. There was only one candle left in the room, close to the bed. Miss Crawford took all the jewels off, and asked Lady Donaldson for the key of the safe, so that she might put them away. My lady gave her the key, and said to me, "'You can go to bed, Tremlett. You must be dead tired.' I was glad to go, for I could hardly stand up, I was so tired. I said, "'Good night,' to my lady, and also to Miss Crawford, who was busy putting the jewels away. As I was going out of the room, I heard Lady Donaldson saying, "'Have you managed it, my dear?' Miss Crawford said, "'I have put everything away very nicely.' In answer to Sir James Fenwick, Tremlett said that Lady Donaldson always carried the key of her jewellery safe on a ribbon round her neck, and had done so the whole day preceding her death. "'On the night of the twenty-fourth, she continued, Lady Donaldson seemed rather tired and went up to her room directly after dinner, and while the family were still sitting in the dining-room. She made me dress her hair, then she slipped on her dressing-gown and sat in the armchair with a book. She told me that she then felt strangely uncomfortable and nervous, and could not account for it. However, she did not want me to sit with her, so I thought that the best thing I could do was to tell Mr. David Graham that her ladyship did not seem very cheerful. Her ladyship was so fond of Mr. David, it always made her happy to have him with her. I then went to my room, and at half-past eight Mr. David called me. He said, "'Your mistress does seem a little restless to-night. If I were you, I would just go and listen at her door in about an hour's time, 
and if she has not gone to bed, I would go in and stay with her until she has. At about ten o'clock I did as Mr. David suggested, and listened at her ladyship's door. However, all was quiet in the room, and thinking her ladyship had gone to sleep, I went back to bed. The next morning at eight o'clock, when I took my mistress's cup of tea, I saw her lying on the floor, her poor dear face all purple and distorted. I screamed, and the other servants came rushing along. Then Mr. Graham had the door locked, and sent for the doctor and the police. The poor woman seemed to find it very difficult not to break down. She was closely questioned by Sir James Fenwick, but had nothing further to say. She had last seen her mistress alive at eight o'clock on the evening of the twenty-fourth. "'And when you listened at her door at ten o'clock,' asked Sir James, "'did you try to open it?' "'I did, but it was locked,' she replied. "'Did Lady Donaldson always lock her bedroom at night?' "'Nearly always.' and in the morning when you took in the tea the door was open i walked straight in you are quite sure insisted sir james i swear it solemnly asserted the woman after that we were informed by several members of mr graham's establishment that miss crawford had been into tea at charlotte square in the afternoon of the twenty fourth that she told every one she was going to london by the night mail as she had some special shopping she wished to do there it appears that mr graham and david both tried to persuade her to stay to dinner, and then to go by the 9.10 p.m. from the Caledonian station. Miss Crawford, however, had refused, saying she always preferred to go from the Waverley station. It was nearer to her own rooms, and she still had a good deal of writing to do. In spite of this, two witnesses saw the accused in Charlotte Square later on in the evening. She was carrying a bag which seemed heavy, and was walking towards the Caledonian railway station. But the most thrilling moment in that sensational trial was reached on the second day, when David Graham, looking wretchedly ill, unkempt and haggard, stepped into the witness-box. A murmur of sympathy went round the audience at the sight of him, who was the second, perhaps, most deeply stricken victim of the Charlotte Square tragedy. David Graham, in answer to Crown Counsel, gave an account of his last interview with Lady Donaldson. Tremlin had told me that she seemed anxious and upset, and I went to have a chat with her. She soon cheered up, and—there the unfortunate young man hesitated visibly, but after a while resumed with an obvious effort. She spoke of my marriage, and of the gift she was about to bestow upon me. She said the diamonds would be for my wife, and after that for my daughter, if I had one. She also complained that Mr. McFinley had been so punctilious about preparing the deed of gift, and that it was a great pity the one hundred thousand pounds could not pass from her hands to mine without so much fuss. I stayed talking with her for about half an hour, then I left her, as she seemed ready to go to bed, but I told her maid to listen at the door in about an hour's time. There was a deep silence in the court for several moments, a silence which to me seemed almost electrical. It was as if, some time before it was uttered, the next question put by Crown Counsel to the witness had hovered in the air. "'You were engaged to Miss Edith Crawford at one time, were you not?' one felt, rather than heard, the almost inaudible yes, which escaped from David Graham's compressed lips. Under what circumstances was that engagement broken off? Sir James Fenwick had already risen in protest, but David Graham had been the first to speak. I do not think that I need answer that question. "'I will put it in a different form, then,' said Crown Counsel urbanely, one to which my learned friend cannot possibly take exception. Did you, or did you not, on October 27th, receive a letter from the accused, in which she desired to be released from her promise of marriage to you. Again David Graham would have refused to answer, 
and he certainly gave no audible reply to the learned counsel's question, but everyone in the audience there present, I, every member of the jury and of the bar, read upon David Graham's pale countenance and large sorrowful eyes that ominous yes which had failed to reach his trembling lips. End of chapter 15chapters 16 and 17 of the old man in the corner this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the old man in the corner by baroness orzy chapter 16 non proven there is no doubt continued the man in the corner that what little sympathy the young girl's terrible position had aroused in the public mind had died out the moment that David Graham left the witness-box on the second day of the trial. Whether Edith Crawford was guilty of murder or not, the callous way in which she had accepted a deformed lover, and then thrown him over, had set every one's mind against her. It was Mr. Graham himself who had been the first to put the procurator fiscal in possession of the fact that the accused had written to David from London, breaking off her engagement. This information had, no doubt, directed the attention of the fiscal to Miss Crawford, and the police soon brought forward the evidence which had led to her arrest. We had a final sensation on the third day, when Mr. Campbell, jeweller of High Street, gave his evidence. He said that on October 25th a lady came to his shop and offered to sell him a pair of diamond earrings. Trade had been very bad, and he had refused the bargain, although the lady seemed ready to part with the earrings for an extraordinarily low sum, considering the beauty of the stones. In fact, it was because of this evident desire on the lady's part to sell at any cost that he had looked at her more keenly than he otherwise would have done. He was now ready to swear that the lady that offered him the diamond earrings was the prisoner in the dock. I can assure you that as we all listened to this apparently damnatory evidence, you might have heard a pin drop amongst the audience in that crowded court. The girl alone, there in the dock, remained calm and unmoved. Remember that for two days we had heard evidence to prove that old Dr. Crawford had died leaving his daughter penniless, that having no mother she had been brought up by a maiden aunt who had trained her to be a governess, which occupation she had followed for years, and that certainly she had never been known by any of her friends to be in possession of solitaire diamond earrings. The prosecution had certainly secured an ace of trumps, but Sir James Fenwick, who during the whole of that day had seemed to take little interest in the proceedings, here rose from his seat, and I knew at once that he had got a tidbit in the way of a point up his sleeve. Gaunt and unusually tall, and with his beak-like nose, he always looks strangely impressive when he seriously tackles a witness. He did it this time with a vengeance, I can tell you. He was all over the pompous little jeweller in a moment. Had Mr. Campbell made a special entry in his book as to the visit of the lady in question? No. Had he any special means of ascertaining when that visit did actually take place? No, but— What record had he of the visit? Mr. Campbell had none. In fact, after about twenty minutes of cross-examination, he had to admit that he had given but little thought to the interview with the lady at the time, and certainly not in connection with the murder of Lady Donaldson, until he had read in the papers that a young lady had been arrested. Then he and his clerk talked the matter over, it appears, and together they had certainly recollected that a lady had brought in some beautiful earrings for sale on a day which must have been the morning after the murder. If Sir James Fenwick's object was to discredit this special witness, he certainly gained his point. All the pomposity went out of Mr. Campbell. He became flurried, then excited. Then he lost his temper. 
After that he was allowed to leave the court, and Sir James Fenwick resumed his seat, and waited like a vulture for its prey. It presented itself in the person of Mr. Campbell's clerk, who, before the procurator fiscal, had corroborated his employer's evidence in every respect. In Scotland no witness in any case is present in court during the examination of another, and Mr. Macfarlane, the clerk, was therefore quite unprepared for the pitfalls which Sir James Fenwick had prepared for him. He tumbled into them head foremost, and the eminent advocate turned him inside out like a glove. Mr. Macfarlane did not lose his temper. He was of too humble a frame of mind to do that, but he got into a hopeless quagmire of mixed recollections, and he too left the witness-box quite unprepared to swear as to the day of the interview with the lady with the diamond earrings. "'I dare say, mind you,' continued the man in the corner with a chuckle, "'that to most people present Sir James Fenwick's cross-questioning seemed completely irrelevant. Both Mr. Campbell and his clerk were quite ready to swear that they had had an interview concerning some diamond earrings with a lady, of whose identity with the accused they were perfectly convinced.' and to the casual observer the question as to the time, or even the day when that interview took place, could make but little difference in the ultimate issue. Now I took in, in a moment, the entire drift of Sir James Fenwick's defence of Edith Crawford. When Mr. Macfarlane left the witness-box, the second victim of the eminent advocate's caustic tongue, I could read, as in a book, the whole history of that crime, its investigation, and the mistakes made by the police first and the public prosecutor afterwards. Sir James Fenwick knew them too, of course, and he placed a finger upon each one, demolishing, like a child who blows upon a house of cards, the entire scaffolding erected by the prosecution. Mr. Campbell's and Mr. Macfarlane's identification of the accused with the lady who, on some date, admitted to be uncertain, had tried to sell a pair of diamond earrings, was the first point. Sir James had plenty of witnesses to prove that on the 25th, the day after the murder, the accused was in London, whilst, the day before, Mr. Campbell's shop had been closed long before the family circle had seen the last of Lady Donaldson. Clearly the jeweller and his clerk must have seen some other lady, whom their vivid imagination had pictured as being identical with the accused. Then came the great question of time. Mr. David Graham had been evidently the last to see Lady Donaldson alive. He had spoken to her as late as 8.30 p.m., Sir James Fenwick had called two porters at the Caledonian railway station, who testified to Miss Crawford having taken her seat in a first-class carriage of the 910 train some minutes before it started. "'Was it conceivable, therefore,' argued Sir James, "'that in the space of half an hour the accused, a young girl, could have found her way surreptitiously into the house at a time when the entire household was still astir, that she could have strangled Lady Donaldson, forced open the safe, and made away with the jewels? A man, an experienced burglar, might have done it, but I contend that the accused is physically incapable of accomplishing such a feat. With regard to the broken engagement, continued the eminent counsel with a smile, it may have seemed a little heartless, certainly, but heartlessness is no crime in the eyes of the law. The accused has stated in her declaration that at the time she wrote to Mr. David Graham, breaking off her engagement, she had heard nothing of the Edinburgh tragedy. The London papers had reported the crime very briefly. The accused was busy shopping, she knew nothing of Mr. David Graham's altered position. In no case was the breaking off of the engagement a proof that the accused had obtained possession of the jewels by so foul a deed. "'It is, of course, impossible for me,' continued the man in the corner, apologetically, "'to give you any idea of the eminent advocate's eloquence and masterful logic. It struck everyone, I think, just as it did me, that he chiefly directed his attention to the fact that there was absolutely no proof against the accused. Be that as it may, 
the result of that remarkable trial was a verdict of non-proven. The jury was absent forty minutes, and it appears that in the mind of every one of them there remained, in spite of Sir James's argument, a firmly rooted conviction, call it instinct, if you like, that Edith Crawford had done away with Lady Donaldson in order to become possessed of those jewels, and that in spite of the pompous jeweler's many contradictions, she had offered him some of those diamonds for sale. But there was not enough proof to convict, and she was given the benefit of the doubt. I have heard English people argue that in England she would have been hanged. Personally, I doubt that. I think that an English jury, not having the judicial loophole of non-proven, would have been bound to acquit her. What do you think? Chapter 17 Undeniable Facts There was a moment's silence, for Polly did not reply immediately, and he went on making impossible knots in his bit of string. Then she said quietly, I think that I agree with those English people who say that an English jury would have condemned her. I have no doubt that she was guilty. She may not have committed that awful deed herself. Someone in the Charlotte Square house may have been her accomplice, and killed and robbed Lady Donaldson while Edith Crawford waited outside for the jewels. David Graham left his godmother at 8.30 p.m. If the accomplice was one of the servants in the house, he or she would have had plenty of time for any amount of villainy, and Edith Crawford could have yet caught the 9.10 train from the Caledonian station. "'Then who, in your opinion?' he asked sarcastically, and cocking his funny, bird-like head on one side, tried to sell the diamond earrings to Mr. Campbell, the jeweler. "'Edith Crawford, of course,' she retorted triumphantly. "'He and his clerk both recognized her.' When did she try to sell them the earrings? Ah, that is what I cannot quite make out, and there to my mind lies the only mystery in this case. On the 25th she was certainly in London, and it is not very likely that she would go back to Edinburgh in order to dispose of the jewels there, where they could most easily be traced. Not very likely, certainly, he assented dryly. And, added the young girl, on the day before she left for London, Lady Donaldson was alive. And pray, he said suddenly, as with comic complacency, he surveyed a beautiful knot he had just twisted up between his long fingers. What has that fact got to do with it? But it has everything to do with it, she retorted. Ah, there you go, he sighed with comic emphasis. My teachings don't seem to have improved your powers of reasoning. You are as bad as the police. Lady Donaldson has been robbed and murdered, and you immediately argue that she was robbed and murdered by the same person. But, argued Polly, there is no but, he said, getting more and more excited. See how simple it is. Edith Crawford wears the diamonds one night, then she brings them back to Lady Donaldson's room. Remember the maid's statement. My lady said, Have you put them back, my dear? A simple statement, utterly ignored by the prosecution. But what did it mean? That Lady Donaldson could not see for herself whether Edith Crawford had put back the jewels or not, since she asked the question. Then you argue— I never argue, he interrupted excitedly. I state undeniable facts. Edith Crawford, who wanted to steal the jewels, took them then and there, when she had the opportunity. Why in the world should she have waited? Lady Donaldson was in bed, and Tremlett, the maid, had gone. The next day, namely the twenty-fifth, she tries to dispose of a pair of earrings to Mr. Campbell. She fails, and decides to go to London, where she has a better chance. Sir James Fenwick did not think it desirable to bring forward witnesses to prove what I have since ascertained is a fact, namely, that on the 27th of October, three days before her arrest, Miss Crawford crossed over to Belgium, and came back to London the next day. In Belgium, no doubt, Lady Donaldson's diamonds, taken out of their settings, calmly repose at this moment, while the money derived from their sale is safely deposited in a Belgian bank. 
"'But then, who murdered Lady Donaldson, and why?' gasped Polly. "'Can you not guess?' he queried blandly. "'Have I not placed the case clearly enough before you? To me it seems so simple. It was a daring, brutal murder, remember. Think of one who, not being the thief himself, would nevertheless have the strongest of all motives to shield the thief from the consequences of her own misdeed. Aye, and the power, too, since it would be absolutely illogical, nay, impossible, that he should be an accomplice. Surely! Think of a curious nature, warped morally as well as physically. Do you know how those natures feel? A thousand times more strongly than the even, straight natures in everyday life. Then think of such a nature, brought face to face with this awful problem. Do you think that such a nature would hesitate a moment before committing a crime to save the loved one from the consequences of that deed? Mind you, I don't assert for a moment that David Graham had any intention of murdering Lady Donaldson. Tremlett tells him that she seems strangely upset. He goes to her room and finds that she has discovered that she has been robbed. She naturally suspects Edith Crawford, recollects the incidents of the other night, and probably expresses her feelings to David Graham, and threatens immediate prosecution, scandal, what you will. I repeat it again. I dare say he had no wish to kill her. Probably he merely threatened to. A medical gentleman who spoke of sudden heart failure was no doubt right. Then imagine David Graham's remorse, his horror, and his fears. The empty safe probably is the first object that suggested to him the grim tableau of robbery and murder, which he arranges in order to ensure his own safety. But remember one thing. No miscreant was seen to enter or leave the house surreptitiously. The murderer left no signs of entrance and none of exit. An armed burglar would have left some trace. Someone would have heard something. Then who locked and unlocked Lady Donaldson's door that night while she herself lay dead? Someone in the house, I tell you. Someone who left no trace. Someone against whom there could be no suspicion. Someone who killed without apparently the slightest premeditation and without the slightest motive. Think of it. I know I am right. And then tell me if I have at all enlisted your sympathies in the author of the Edinburgh mystery. He was gone. Polly looked again at the photo of David Graham. Did a crooked mind really dwell in that crooked body? And were there in the world such crimes that were great enough to be deemed sublime? End of chapters 16 and 17「That question of motive is a very difficult and complicated one at times, said the man in the corner leisurely pulling off a huge pair of flaming dogskin gloves from his meagre fingers. I have known experienced criminal investigators declare, as an infallible axiom, that to find the person interested in the committal of the crime is to find the criminal. Well, that may be so in most cases, but my experience has proved to me that there is one factor in this world of ours which is the mainspring of human actions, and that factor is human passions. For good or evil, passions rule this poor humanity of ours. Remember, there are the women. French detectives, who are acknowledged masters in their craft, never proceed till they have discovered the feminine element in a crime, whether in theft, murder, or fraud, according to their theory, there is always a woman. Perhaps the reason why the Phillimore Terrace robbery was never brought home to its perpetrators 
is because there was no woman in any way connected with it, and I am quite sure, on the other hand, that the reason why the thief at the English Provident Bank is still unpunished is because a clever woman has escaped the eyes of our police force. He had spoken at great length and very dictatorially. Miss Polly Burton did not venture to contradict him, knowing by now that whenever he was irritable he was invariably rude, and then she had the worst of it. "'When I am old,' he resumed, "'and have nothing more to do, I think I shall take professionally to the police force. They have much to learn.' Could anything be more ludicrous than the self-satisfaction, the abnormal conceit of this remark, made by that shriveled piece of mankind in a nervous, hesitating tone of voice? Polly made no comment, but drew from her pocket a beautiful piece of string, and knowing his custom of knotting such an article while unravelling his mysteries, she handed it across the table to him. She positively thought that he blushed. "'As an adjunct to thought,' she said, moved by a conciliatory spirit. He looked at the invaluable toy which the young girl had tantalizingly placed close to his hand. Then he forced himself to look all around the coffee-room, at Polly, at the waitresses, at the piles of pallid buns upon the counter. But involuntarily his mild blue eyes wandered back lovingly to the long piece of string, on which his playful imagination no doubt already saw a series of knots, which would be equally tantalizing to tie and to untie. "'Tell me about the theft at the English Provident Bank,' suggested Polly condescendingly. He looked at her as if she had proposed some mysterious complicity in an unheard-of crime. Finally his lean fingers sought the end of the piece of string and drew it towards him. His face brightened up in a moment. "'There was an element of tragedy in that particular robbery,' he began after a few moments of beautified nodding. "'Altogether different to that connected with most crimes, a tragedy which, as far as I am concerned, would seal my lips for ever and forbid them to utter a word which might lead the police on the right track.' "'Your lips,' suggested Polly sarcastically, "'are, as far as I can see, usually sealed before our long-suffering, incompetent police, and—' "'And you should be the last to grumble at this,' he quietly interrupted, "'for you have spent some very pleasant half-hours already, listening to what you have termed my cock-and-bull stories. You know the English Provident Bank, of course, in Oxford Street. There were plenty of sketches of it at the time in the illustrated papers. Here is a photo of the outside.' I took it myself some time ago, and only wish I had been cheeky or lucky enough to get a snapshot of the interior. But you see that the office has a separate entrance from the rest of the house, which was, and still is, as is usual in such cases, inhabited by the manager and his family. Mr. Ireland was the manager then. It was less than six months ago. He lived over the bank with his wife and family, consisting of a son, who was clerk in the business, and two or three younger children. The house is really smaller than it looks on this photo, for it has no depth, and only one set of rooms on each floor looking out into the street, the back of the house being nothing but the staircase. Mr. Ireland and his family, therefore, occupied the whole of it. As for the business premises, they were, and in fact are, of the usual pattern, an office with its rows of desks, clerks and cashiers, and beyond, through a glass door, the manager's private room, with the ponderous safe and desk, and so on. The private room has a door into the hall of the house, so that the manager is not obliged to go out into the street in order to go to business. There are no living rooms on the ground floor, and the house has no basement. I am obliged to put all these architectural details before you, though they may sound rather dry and uninteresting, but they are really necessary in order to make my argument clear. At night, of course, the bank premises are barred and bolted against the street, and as an additional precaution there is always a night watchman in the office. 
As I mentioned before, there is only a glass door between the office and the manager's private room. This, of course, accounted for the fact that the night watchman heard all that he did hear, on that memorable night, and so helped further to entangle the thread of that impenetrable mystery. Mr. Ireland, as a rule, went into his office every morning a little before ten o'clock, but on that particular morning, for some reason which he never could or would explain, he went down before having his breakfast at about nine o'clock. Mrs. Ireland stated, subsequently, that, not hearing him return, she sent the servant down to tell the master that breakfast was getting cold. The girl's shrieks were the first intimation that something alarming had occurred. Mrs. Ireland hastened downstairs. On reaching the hall she found the door of her husband's room open, and it was from there that the girl's shrieks proceeded. "'The master, mum! The poor master! He is dead, mum! I'm sure he is dead!' Accompanied by vigorous thumps against the glass partition, and not very measured language on the part of the watchman from the outer office, such as, "'Why don't you open the door instead of making that row?' Mrs. Ireland is not the sort of woman who, under any circumstances, would lose her presence of mind. I think she proved that throughout the many trying circumstances connected with the investigation of the case. She gave only one glance at the room, and realized the situation. On the armchair, the head thrown back and eyes closed, lay Mr. Ireland, apparently in a dead faint. Some terrible shock must have very suddenly shattered his nervous system, and rendered him prostrate for the moment. What that shock had been, it was pretty easy to guess. The door of the safe was wide open, and Mr. Ireland had evidently tottered and fainted before some awful fact which the open safe had revealed to him. He had caught himself against the chair which lay on the floor, and then finally sunk unconscious into the armchair. All this, which takes some time to describe, continued the man in the corner, took, remember, only a second to pass like a flash through Mrs. Ireland's mind. She quickly turned the key of the glass door, which was on the inside, and with the help of James Fairbairn, the watchman, she carried her husband upstairs to his room, and immediately sent both for the police and for a doctor. As Mrs. Ireland had anticipated, her husband had received a severe mental shock which had completely prostrated him. The doctor prescribed absolute quiet, and forbade all worrying questions for the present. The patient was not a young man. The shock had been very severe. It was a case, a very slight one, of cerebral congestion, and Mr. Ireland's reason, if not his life, might be gravely jeopardized by any attempt to recall before his enfeebled mind the circumstances which had preceded his collapse. The police, therefore, could proceed but slowly in their investigations. The detective who had charge of the case was necessarily handicapped, whilst one of the chief actors concerned in the drama was unable to help him in his work. To begin with, the robber or robbers had obviously not found their way into the manager's inner room through the bank premises. James Fairbairn had been on the watch all night with the electric light full on, and obviously no one could have crossed the outer office or forced the heavily barred doors without his knowledge. There remained the other access to the room, that is, the one through the hall of the house. The hall door, it appears, was always barred and bolted by Mr. Ireland himself when he came home, whether from the theatre or his club. It was a duty he never allowed anyone to perform but himself. During his annual holiday with his wife and family, his son, who usually had the sub-manager to stay with him on those occasions, did the bolting and barring, but with the distinct understanding that this should be done by ten o'clock at night. As I have already explained to you, there is only a glass partition between the general office and the manager's private room, and according to James Fairbairn's account, this was naturally always left wide open so that he, during his night watch, would of necessity hear the faintest sound. As a rule, there was no light left in the manager's room, 
and the other door, that leading into the hall, was bolted from the inside by James Fairbairn the moment he had satisfied himself that the premises were safe, and he had begun his night watch. An electric bell in both the offices communicated with Mr. Ireland's bedroom and that of his son, Mr. Robert Ireland, and there was a telephone installed to the nearest district messenger's office, with an understood signal which meant police. At nine o'clock in the morning it was the night watchman's duty, as soon as the first cashier had arrived, to dust and tidy the manager's room, and to undo the bolts. After that he was free to go home to his breakfast and rest. You will see, of course, that James Fairburn's position in the English Provident Bank is one of great responsibility and trust. But then in every bank and business house there are men who hold similar positions. They are always men of well-known and tried characters, often old soldiers with good conduct records behind them. James Fairbairn is a fine, powerful Scotchman. He had been the night watchman to the English Provident Bank for fifteen years, and was then not more than forty-three or forty-four years old. He is an ex-guardsman, and stands six feet three inches in his socks. It was his evidence, of course, which was of such paramount importance, and which somehow or other managed, in spite of the utmost care exercised by the police, to become public property, and to cause the wildest excitement in banking and business circles. James Fairbairn stated that at eight o'clock in the evening of March 25th, having bolted and barred all the shutters and the door of the bank premises, he was about to lock the manager's door as usual when Mr. Ireland called to him from the floor above, telling him to leave that door open, as he might want to go into the office again for a minute when he came home at eleven o'clock. James Fairbairn asked if he should leave the light on, but Mr. Ireland said no, turn it out, I can switch it on if I want it. The night watchman at the English Provident Bank has permission to smoke. He also is allowed a nice fire, and a tray consisting of a plate of substantial sandwiches, and one glass of ale, which he can take when he likes. James Fairbairn settled himself in front of the fire, lit his pipe, took out his newspaper, and began to read. He thought he had heard the street door open and shut at about a quarter to ten. He supposed that it was Mr. Ireland going out to his club. But at ten minutes to ten o'clock the watchman heard the door of the manager's room open and someone enter, immediately closing the glass partition door and turning the key. He naturally concluded it was Mr. Ireland himself. From where he sat he could not see into the room, but he noticed that the electric light had not been switched on, and that the manager seemingly had no light but an occasional match. "'For the minute,' continued James Fairbairn, "'a thought did cross my mind that something might perhaps be wrong, and I put my newspaper aside and went to the other end of the room towards the glass partition. The manager's room was still quite dark, and I could not clearly see into it, but the door into the hall was open, and there was, of course, a light through there. I had got quite close to the partition when I saw Mrs. Ireland standing in the doorway, and heard her saying in a very astonished tone of voice, "'Why, Louis, I thought you had gone to your club ages ago. What in the world are you doing here in the dark?' "'Louis is Mr. Ireland's Christian name,' was James Fairbairn's further statement. I did not hear the manager's reply.' But quite satisfied now that nothing was wrong, I went back to my pipe and my newspaper. Almost directly afterwards I heard the manager leave his room, cross the hall, and go out by the street door. It was only after he had gone that I recollected that he must have forgotten to unlock the glass partition, and that I could not therefore bolt the door into the hall the same as usual. And I suppose that is how those confounded thieves got the better of me. End of chapter 18 Chapters 19 and 20 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter 19 Conflicting Evidence. By the time the public had been able to think over James Farbarn's evidence, a certain disquietude and unrest had begun to make itself felt both in the bank itself and among those of our detective force who had charge of the case. The newspapers spoke of the matter with very obvious caution, and warned all their readers to await the further development of this sad case. While the manager of the English Provident Bank lay in such a precarious condition of health, it was impossible to arrive at any definite knowledge as to what the thief had actually made away with. The chief cashier, however, estimated the loss at about five thousand pounds in gold and notes of the bank money. That was, of course, on the assumption that Mr. Ireland had no private money or valuables of his own in the safe. Mind you, at this point public sympathy was much stirred in favour of the poor man who lay ill, perhaps dying, and yet whom, strangely enough, suspicion had already slightly touched with its poisoned wing. Suspicion is a strong word, perhaps, to use at this point in the story. No one suspected anybody at present. James Farbarn had told his story, and had vowed that some thief with false keys must have sneaked through the house into the inner office. Public excitement, you will remember, lost nothing by waiting. Hardly had we all had time to wonder over the night watchman's singular evidence, and, pending further and fuller detail, to check our growing sympathy for the man who was ill, than the sensational side of this mysterious case culminated in one extraordinary, absolutely unexpected fact. Mrs. Ireland, after a twenty-four hours untiring watch beside her husband's sickbed, had at last been approached by the detective, and been asked to reply to a few simple questions, and thus helped to throw some light on the mystery which had caused Mr. Ireland's illness and her own consequent anxiety. She professed herself quite ready to reply to any questions put to her, and she literally astounded both inspector and detective when she firmly and emphatically declared that James Farborn must have been dreaming or asleep when he thought he saw her in the doorway at ten o'clock that night, and fancied he heard her voice. She may or may not have been down in the hall at that particular hour, for she usually ran down herself to see if the last post had brought any letters, but most certainly she had neither seen nor spoken to Mr. Ireland at that hour, for Mr. Ireland had gone out an hour before, she herself having seen him to the front door. Never for a moment did she swerve from this extraordinary statement. She spoke to James Fairburn in the presence of the detective, and told him he must absolutely have been mistaken, that she had not seen Mr. Ireland, and that she had not spoken to him. One other person was questioned by the police, and that was Mr. Robert Ireland, the manager's eldest son. It was presumed that he would know something of his father's affairs. The idea, having now taken firm hold of the detective's mind, that perhaps grave financial difficulties had tempted the unfortunate manager to appropriate some of the firm's money. Mr. Robert Ireland, however, could not say very much. His father did not confide in him to the extent of telling him all his private affairs, but money never seemed scarce at home, certainly, and Mr. Ireland had, to his son's knowledge, not a single extravagant habit. He himself had been dining out with a friend on that memorable evening, and had gone on with him to the Oxford Music Hall. He met his father on the doorstep of the bank at about 11.30 p.m., and they went in together. There certainly was nothing remarkable about Mr. Ireland then, his son averred. He appeared in no way excited, and bade his son good-night quite cheerfully. There was the extraordinary, the remarkable hitch, continued the man in the corner, waxing more and more excited every moment. The public, who is at times very dense, saw it clearly nevertheless. 
Of course, everyone at once jumped to the natural conclusion that Mrs. Ireland was telling a lie. A noble lie, a self-sacrificing lie, a lie endowed with all the virtues, if you like, but still a lie. She was trying to save her husband, and was going the wrong way to work. James Fairbairn, after all, could not have dreamt quite all that he declared he had seen and heard. No one suspected James Fairbairn. There was no occasion to do that. To begin with, he was a great heavy Scotchman, with obviously no powers of invention, such as Mrs. Ireland's strange assertion credited him with. Moreover, the theft of the banknotes could not have been of the slightest use to him. But remember, there was the hitch. Without it, the public mind would already have condemned the sick man upstairs, without hope of rehabilitation. This fact struck everyone. Granting that Mr. Ireland had gone into his office at ten minutes to ten o'clock at night, for the purpose of extracting five thousand pounds worth of notes and gold from the bank safe, whilst giving the theft the appearance of a night burglary, granting that he was disturbed in his nefarious project by his wife, who, failing to persuade him to make restitution, took his side boldly, and very clumsily attempted to rescue him out of his difficult position, why should he, at nine o'clock the following morning, fall in a dead faint and get cerebral congestion, at sight of a defalcation he knew had occurred? One might simulate a fainting fit, but no one can assume a high temperature and a congestion, which the most ordinary practitioner, who happened to be called in, would soon see were non-existent. Mr. Ireland, according to James Fairbairn's evidence, must have gone out soon after the theft, come in again with his son an hour and a half later, talked to him, gone quietly to bed, and waited for nine hours before he fell ill at the sight of his own crime. It was not logical, you will admit, Unfortunately, the poor man himself was unable to give any explanation of the night's tragic adventures. He was still very weak, and though under strong suspicion, he was left, by the doctor's orders, in absolute ignorance of the heavy charges which were gradually accumulating against him. He had made many anxious inquiries from all who had access to his bedside as to the result of the investigation, and the probable speedy capture of the burglars, but every one had strict orders to inform him merely that the police so far had no clue of any kind. You will admit, as every one did, that there was something very pathetic about the unfortunate man's position, so helpless to defend himself, if defence there was, against so much overwhelming evidence. That is why I think public sympathy remained with him. Still, it was terrible to think of his wife, presumably knowing him to be guilty, and anxiously waiting whilst dreading the moment, when, restored to health, he would have to face the doubts, the suspicions, probably the open accusations, which were fast rising up around him. CHAPTER Twenty, AN ALIBI It was close on six weeks before the doctor at last allowed his patient to attend to the grave business which had prostrated him for so long. In the meantime, among the many people who directly or indirectly were made to suffer in this mysterious affair, no one, I think, was more pitied and more genuinely sympathized with than Robert Ireland, the manager's eldest son. You remember that he had been clerk in the bank? Well, naturally, the moment suspicion began to fasten on his father, his position in the business became untenable. I think every one was very kind to him. Mr. Sutherland French, who was made acting manager during Mr. Lewis Ireland's regrettable absence, did everything in his power to show his good will and sympathy to the young man. But I don't think that he or anyone else was much astonished when, after Mrs. Ireland's extraordinary attitude in the case had become public property, he quietly intimated to the acting manager that he had determined to sever his connection with the bank. The best of recommendations was, of course, placed at his disposal, and it was finally understood that, as soon as his father was completely restored to health, 
and would no longer require his presence in London, he would try to obtain employment somewhere abroad. He spoke of a new volunteer corps organized for military policing of the new colonies, and truth to tell, no one could blame him that he should wish to leave far behind him all London banking connections. The son's attitude certainly did not tend to ameliorate the father's position. It was pretty evident that his own family had ceased to hope in the poor manager's innocence. And yet he was absolutely innocent. You must remember how the fact was clearly demonstrated as soon as the poor man was able to say a word for himself and he said it to some purpose, too. Mr. Ireland was, and is, very fond of music. On the evening in question, while sitting in his club, he saw in one of the daily papers the announcement of a peculiarly attractive program at the Queen's Hall concert. He was not dressed, but nevertheless felt an irresistible desire to hear one or two of these attractive musical items, and he strolled down to the hall. Now this sort of alibi is usually very difficult to prove, but Dame Fortune, oddly enough, favoured Mr. Ireland on this occasion, probably to compensate him for the hard knocks she had been dealing with him pretty freely of late. It appears that there was some difficulty about his seat, which was sold to him at the box-office, and which he, nevertheless, found wrongfully occupied by a determined lady who refused to move. The management had to be appealed to. The attendants also remembered not only the incident, but also the face and appearance of the gentleman who was the innocent cause of the altercation. As soon as Mr. Ireland could speak for himself, he mentioned the incident and the persons who had been witness to it. He was identified by them, to the amazement, it must be confessed, of police and public alike, who had comfortably decided that no one could be guilty except the manager of the Provident Bank himself. Moreover, Mr. Ireland was a fairly wealthy man, with a good balance at the Union Bank, and plenty of private means, the result of years of Provident living. He had but to prove that if he really had been in need of an immediate five thousand pounds, which was all the amount extracted from the bank safe that night, he had plenty of securities on which he could, at an hour's notice, have raised twice that sum. His life insurances had been fully paid up. He had not a debt which a five-pound note could not easily have covered. On the fatal night he certainly did remember asking the watchman not to bolt the door to his office, as he thought he might have one or two letters to write when he came home, but later on he had forgotten all about this. After the concert he met his son in Oxford Street, just outside the house, and thought no more about the office, the door of which was shut, and presented no unusual appearance. Mr. Ireland absolutely denied having been in his office at the hour when James Fairbairn positively asserted he heard Mrs. Ireland say in an astonished tone of voice, "'Why, Lewis, what in the world are you doing here?' It became pretty clear, therefore, that James Fairbairn's view of the manager's wife had been a mere vision." Mr. Ireland gave up his position as manager of the English Provident. Both he and his wife felt no doubt that on the whole, perhaps, there had been too much talk, too much scandal connected with their name, to be altogether advantageous to the bank. Moreover, Mr. Ireland's health was not so good as it had been. He has a pretty house now at Sittingbourne, and amuses himself during his leisure hours with amateur horticulture, and I, who alone in London besides the persons directly connected with this mysterious affair, know the true solution of the enigma often wonder how much of it is known to the ex-manager of the English Provident Bank. The man in the corner had been silent for some time. Miss Polly Burton, in her presumption, had made up her mind, at the commencement of his tale, to listen attentively to every point of the evidence in connection with the case which he recapitulated before her, and to follow the point, in order to try and arrive at a conclusion of her own, and overwhelm the antediluvian scarecrow with her sagacity. She said nothing, for she had arrived at no conclusion. 
the case puzzled everyone and had amazed the public in its various stages, from the moment when opinion began to cast doubt on Mr. Ireland's honesty to that when his integrity was proved beyond a doubt. One or two people had suspected Mrs. Ireland to have been the actual thief, but that idea had soon to be abandoned. Mrs. Ireland had all the money she wanted. The theft occurred six months ago, and not a single banknote was ever traced to her pocket. Moreover, she must have had an accomplice, since someone else was in the manager's room that night, and if that someone else was her accomplice, why did she risk betraying him by speaking loudly in the presence of James Fairbairn, when it would have been so much simpler to turn out the light and plunge the hall into darkness? "'You are altogether on the wrong track,' sounded a sharp voice, in direct answer to Polly's thoughts. "'Altogether wrong. If you want to acquire my method of induction and improve your reasoning power, you must follow my system.' First think of the one absolutely undisputed positive fact. You must have a starting point, and not go wandering about in the realms of suppositions. "'But there are no positive facts,' she said irritably. "'You don't say so,' he said quietly. "'Do you not call it a positive fact that the bank safe was robbed of five thousand pounds on the evening of March twenty-fifth before eleven-thirty p.m.?' "'Yes, that is all which is positive, and—' "'Do you not call it a positive fact?' he interrupted quietly that the lock of the safe not being picked, it must have been opened by its own key? I know that, she rejoined crossly, and that is why everyone agreed that James Fairbairn could not possibly— And do you not call it a positive fact, then, that James Fairbairn could not possibly, etc., etc., seeing that the glass partition door was locked from the inside? Mrs. Ireland herself let James Fairbairn into her husband's office when she saw him lying fainting before the open safe. Of course that was a positive fact, and so was the one that proved to any thinking mind that if the safe was opened with a key, it could only have been done by a person having access to that key. But the man in the private office— Exactly. The man in the private office. Enumerate his points, if you please, said the funny creature, marking each point with one of his favorite knots. He was a man who might that night have had access to the key of the safe, unsuspected by the manager or even his wife, and a man for whom Mrs. Ireland was willing to tell a downright lie. Are there many men for whom a woman of the better middle class and an Englishwoman would be ready to perjure herself? Surely not. She might do it for her husband. The public thought she had. It never struck them that she might have done it for her son. Her son! exclaimed Polly. Ah, she was a clever woman, he ejaculated enthusiastically, one with courage and presence of mind, which I don't think I have ever seen equaled. She runs downstairs before going to bed in order to see whether the last post has brought any letters. She sees the door of her husband's office ajar. She pushes it open, and there, by the sudden flash of a hastily struck match, she realizes in a moment that a thief stands before the open safe, and in that thief she has already recognized her son. At that very moment she hears the watchman's step approaching the partition. There is no time to warn her son. She does not know the glass door is locked. James Fairbairn may switch on the electric light, and see the young man in the very act of robbing his employer's safe. One thing alone can reassure the watchman— one person alone had the right to be there at that hour of the night, and without hesitation she pronounces her husband's name. Mind you, I firmly believe that at the time the poor woman only wished to gain time, that she had every hope that her son had not yet had the opportunity to lay so heavy a guilt upon his conscience. What passed between mother and son we shall never know, but this much we do know, that the young villain made off with his booty and trusted that his mother would never betray him. Poor woman! What a night of it she must have spent! but she was clever and far-seeing. She knew that her husband's character could not suffer through her action. 
Accordingly, she took the only course open to her to save her son even from his father's wrath, and boldly denied James Farbarn's statement. Of course, she was fully aware that her husband could easily clear himself, and the worst that could be said of her was that she had thought him guilty and had tried to save him. She trusted to the future to clear her of any charge of complicity in the theft. By now, everyone has forgotten most of the circumstances. The police are still watching the career of James Fairbarn and Mrs. Ireland's expenditure. As you know, not a single note so far has been traced to her. Against that, one or two of the notes have found their way back to England. No one realizes how easy it is to cash English banknotes at the smaller agents de change abroad. The changeurs are only too glad to get them. What do they care where they came from as long as they are genuine? And a week or two later, Monsieur Le Changeur could not swear who tendered him any one particular note. You see, young Robert Ireland went abroad. He will come back some day, having made a fortune. There's his photo. And this is his mother. A clever woman, wasn't she? And before Polly had time to reply, he was gone. She really had never seen anyone move across a room so quickly. But he always left an interesting trail behind. A piece of string knotted from end to end, and a few photos. End of chapters 19 and 20「Chapters 21 and 22 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter 21 The Dublin Mystery. I always thought that the history of that forged will was about as interesting as any I had read, said the man in the corner that day. He had been silent for some time, and was meditatively sorting and looking through a packet of small photographs in his pocket-book. Polly guessed that some of these would presently be placed before her for inspection, and she had not long to wait. "'That is old Brooks,' he said, pointing to one of the photographs. "'Millionaire Brooks, as he was called. And these are his two sons, Percival and Murray. It was a curious case, wasn't it? Personally, I don't wonder that the police were completely at sea.' If a member of that highly estimable force happened to be as clever as the clever author of that forged will, we should have very few undetected crimes in this country. That is why I always try to persuade you to give our poor ignorant police the benefit of your great insight and wisdom, said Polly with a smile. I know, he said blandly, you have been most kind in that way, but I am only an amateur. Crime interests me only when it resembles a clever game of chess, with many intricate moves which all tend to one solution, the checkmating of the antagonist, the detective force of the country. Now confess that in the Dublin mystery the clever police there were absolutely checkmated. Absolutely. Just as the public was. There were actually two crimes committed in one city which have completely baffled detection. The murder of Patrick Weathered, the lawyer, and the forged will of Millionaire Brooks. There are not many millionaires in Ireland. No wonder old Brooks was a notability in his way, since his business, bacon-curing, I believe it is, is said to be worth over two million pounds of solid money. His younger son Mary was a refined, highly educated man, and was, moreover, the apple of his father's eye, as he was the spoilt darling of Dublin society. Good-looking, a splendid dancer, and a perfect rider, he was the acknowledged catch of the matrimonial market of Ireland, and many a very aristocratic house was opened hospitably to the favourite son of the millionaire. Of course, Percival Brooks, the eldest son, would inherit the bulk of the old man's property, and also probably the larger share in the business. He, too, was good-looking. 
more so than his brother. He, too, rode, danced, and talked well, but it was many years ago that mamas with marriageable daughters had given up all hopes of Percival Brooks as a probable son-in-law. That young man's infatuation for Maisie Fortescue, a lady of undoubted charm but very doubtful antecedents, who had astonished the London and Dublin music halls with her extravagant dances, was too well known and too old established to encourage any hopes in other quarters. Whether Percival Brooks would ever marry Maisie Fortescue was thought to be very doubtful. Old Brooks had the full disposal of all his wealth, and it would have fared ill with Percival if he introduced an undesirable wife into the magnificent Fitzwilliam Place establishment. That is how matters stood, continued the man in the corner, when Dublin society one morning learnt, with deep regret and dismay, that old Brooks had died very suddenly at his residence, after only a few hours' illness. At first it was generally understood that he had had an apoplectic stroke. Anyway, he had been at business hale and hearty as ever the day before his death, which occurred late on the evening of February 1st. It was the morning papers of February 2nd which told the sad news to their readers, and it was those self-same papers which on that eventful morning contained another even more startling piece of news, that proved the prelude to a series of sensations such as tranquil, placid Dublin had not experienced for many years. This was that on that very afternoon which saw the death of Dublin's greatest millionaire, Mr. Patrick Weathered, his solicitor, was murdered in Phoenix Park at five o'clock in the afternoon, while actually walking to his own house from his visit to his client in Fitzwilliam Place. Patrick Weathered was as well known as the proverbial town pump. His mysterious and tragic death filled all Dublin with dismay. The lawyer, who was a man of sixty years of age, had been struck on the back of the head by a heavy stick, garroted, and subsequently robbed, for neither money, watch, nor pocket-book were found upon his person, whilst the police soon gathered from Patrick Weathered's household that he had left home at two o'clock that afternoon, carrying both watch and pocket-book, and undoubtedly money as well. An inquest was held, and a verdict of willful murder was found against some person or persons unknown. But Dublin had not exhausted its stock of sensations yet. Millionaire Brooks had been buried with due pomp and magnificence, and his will had been proved, his business and personality being estimated at two million five hundred thousand pounds by Percival Gordon Brooks, his eldest son and sole executor. The younger son, Murray, who had devoted the best years of his life to being a friend and companion to his father, while Percival ran after ballet dancers and music hall stars, Murray, who had avowedly been the apple of his father's eye in consequence, was left with a miserly pittance of three hundred pounds a year, and no share whatever in the gigantic business of Brooks and Sons, bacon-curers of Dublin. Something had evidently happened within the precincts of the Brooks town mansion, which the public and Dublin society tried in vain to fathom. Elderly mamas and blushing debutantes were already thinking of the best means whereby next season they might more easily show the cold shoulder to young Murray Brooks, who had so suddenly become a hopeless detrimental in the marriage market, when all these sensations terminated in one gigantic, overwhelming bit of scandal, which for the next three months furnished food for gossip in every drawing-room in Dublin. Mr. Murray Brooks, namely, had entered a claim for probate of a will, made by his father in 1891, declaring that the later will, made the very day of his father's death, and proved by his brother as sole executor, was null and void, that will being a forgery. CHAPTER Twenty Two: FORGERY The facts that transpired in connection with this extraordinary case were sufficiently mysterious to puzzle everybody. As I told you before, all Mr. Brooks' friends never quite grasped the idea 
that the old man should so completely have cut off his favorite son with the proverbial shilling. You see, Percival had always been a thorn in the old man's flesh. Horse-racing, gambling, theatres, and music-halls were, in the old pork-butcher's eyes, so many deadly sins which his son committed every day of his life, and all the Fitzwilliam Place household could testify to the many and bitter quarrels which had arisen between father and son over the latter's gambling or racing debts. Many people asserted that Brooks would sooner have left his money to charitable institutions than seen it squandered upon the brightest stars that adorned the music-hall stage. The case came up for hearing early in the autumn. In the meanwhile, Percival Brooks had given up his race-course associates, settled down in the Fitzwilliam Place mansion, and conducted his father's business, without a manager, but with all the energy and forethought which he had previously devoted to more unworthy causes. Murray had elected not to stay on in the old house. No doubt associations were of too painful and recent a nature. He was boarding with the family of a Mr. Wilson Hibbert, who was the late Patrick Weatherid's, the murdered lawyer's, partner. They were quiet, homely people who lived in a very poky little house in Kilkenny Street, and poor Murray must, in spite of his grief, have felt very bitterly for the change from his luxurious quarters in his father's mansion to his present tiny room and homely meals. Percival Brooks, who was now drawing an income of over a hundred thousand a year, was very severely criticized for adhering so strictly to the letter of his father's will, and only paying his brother that paltry three hundred pounds a year, which was very literally but the crumbs off his own magnificent dinner-table. The issue of that contested will-case was therefore awaited with eager interest. In the meanwhile the police, who at first seemed fairly loquacious on the subject of the murder of Mr. Patrick Weatherhead, suddenly became strangely reticent, and by their very reticence aroused a certain amount of uneasiness in the public mind, until one day the Irish Times published the following extraordinary enigmatic paragraph. We hear on authority, which cannot be questioned, that certain extraordinary developments are expected in connection with the brutal murder of our distinguished townsman, Mr. Weatherhead. The police, in fact, are vainly trying to keep it secret that they hold a clue which is as important as it is sensational, and that they only await the impending issue of a well-known litigation in the probate court to effect an arrest. The Dublin public flocked to the court to hear the arguments in the great will case. I myself journeyed down to Dublin. As soon as I succeeded in fighting my way to the densely crowded court, I took stock of the various actors in the drama, which I as a spectator was prepared to enjoy. There were Percival Brooks and Murray, his brother, the two litigants, both good-looking and well-dressed, and both striving, by keeping up a running conversation with their lawyer, to appear unconcerned and confident of the issue. With Percival Brooks was Henry Orenmore, the eminent Irish K.C., whilst Walter Hibbert, a rising young barrister, the son of Wilson Hibbert, appeared for Murray. The will of which the latter claimed probate was one dated 1891, and had been made by Mr. Brooks during a severe illness which threatened to end his days. This will had been deposited in the hands of Messrs. Weatherhead and Hibbert, solicitors to the deceased, and by it Mr. Brooks left his personality equally divided between his two sons, but had left his business entirely to his youngest son, with a charge of two thousand pounds a year upon it, payable to Percival. You see that Murray Brooks, therefore, had a very deep interest in that second will being found null and void. Old Mr. Hibbert had very ably instructed his son, and Walter Hibbert's opening speech was exceedingly clever. He would show, he said, on behalf of his client, that the will dated February 1st, 1908, could never have been made by the late Mr. Brooks, as it was absolutely contrary to his avowed intentions, and that, if the late Mr. Brooks did on the day in question make any fresh will at all, 
It certainly was not the one proved by Mr. Percival Brooks, for that was absolutely a forgery from beginning to end. Mr. Walter Hibbert proposed to call several witnesses in support of both these points. On the other hand, Mr. Henry Orenmore, K.C., very ably and courteously replied that he too had several witnesses to prove that Mr. Brooks certainly did make a will on the day in question, and that, whatever his intentions may have been in the past, he must have modified them on the day of his death, for the will proved by Mr. Percival Brooks was found after his death under his pillow, duly signed and witnessed, and in every way legal. Then the battle began in sober earnest. There were a great many witnesses to be called on both sides, their evidence being of more or less importance, chiefly less. But the interest centered round the prosaic figure of John O'Neill, the butler at Fitzwilliam Place, who had been in Mr. Brooks' family for thirty years. "'I was clearing away my breakfast things,' said John, "'when I heard the master's voice in the study close by. Oh, my, he was that angry! I could hear the words disgrace, and villain, and liar, and ballet dancer, and one or two other ugly words as applied to some female lady, which I would not like to repeat. At first I did not take much notice, as I was quite used to hearing my poor dear master having words with Mr. Percival.' So I went downstairs carrying my breakfast things, but I had just started cleaning my silver when the study bell goes ringing violently, and I hear Mr. Percival's voice shouting in the hall, "'John, quick! Send for Dr. Mulligan at once. Your master is not well. Send one of the men, and you come up and help me to get Mr. Brooks to bed.' "'I sent one of the grooms for the doctor,' continued John, who seemed still affected by the recollection of his poor master, to whom he had evidently been very much attached, and I went up to see Mr. Brooks. I found him lying on the study floor, his head supported in Mr. Percival's arms. "'My father has fallen in a faint,' said the young master. "'Help me to get him up to his room before Dr. Mulligan comes.' Mr. Percival looked very white and upset, which was only natural, and when we had got my poor master to bed, I asked if I should not go and break the news to Mr. Murray, who had gone to business an hour ago. However, before Mr. Percival had time to give me an order, the doctor came. I thought I had seen death plainly writ in my master's face, and when I showed the doctor out an hour later, and he told me that he would be back directly, I knew that the end was near. Mr. Brooks rang for me a minute or two later. He told me to send at once for Mr. Weathered, or else for Mr. Hibbard, if Mr. Weathered could not come. "'I haven't many hours to live, John,' he says to me. "'My heart is broke. The doctor says my heart is broke. A man shouldn't marry and have children, John, for they will sooner or later break his heart.' I was so upset I couldn't speak, but I sent round at once for Mr. Weathered, who came himself just about three o'clock that afternoon. After he had been with my master about an hour, I was called in, and Mr. Weathered said to me that Mr. Brooks wished me and one other of us servants to witness that he had signed a paper, which was on a table by his bedside. I called Pat Mooney, the head footman, and before us both Mr. Brooks put his name at the bottom of that paper. Then Mr. Weathered gave me the pen and told me to write my name as a witness, and that Pat Mooney was to do the same. After that we were both told that we could go. The old butler went on to explain that he was present in his late master's room on the following day, when the undertakers, who had come to lay the dead man out, found a paper underneath his pillow. John O'Neill, who recognized the paper as the one to which he had appended his signature the day before, took it to Mr. Percival and gave it into his hands. In answer to Mr. Walter Hibbert, John asserted positively that he took the paper from the undertaker's hand and went straight with it to Mr. Percival's room. "'He was alone,' said John. "'I gave him the paper. He just glanced at it, and I thought he looked rather astonished, but he said nothing. 
and I at once left the room. When you say that you recognized the paper as the one which you had seen your master sign the day before, how did you actually recognize that it was the same paper? asked Mr. Hibbert, amidst breathless interest on the part of the spectators. I narrowly observed the witness's face. It looked exactly the same paper to me, sir, replied John, somewhat vaguely. Did you look at the contents, then? No, sir, certainly not. Had you done so the day before? No, sir, only at my master's signature. Then you only thought by the outside look of the paper that it was the same? It looked the same thing, sir, persisted John obstinately. You see, continued the man in the corner, leaning eagerly forward across the narrow marble table, the contention of Murray Brooks' adviser was that Mr. Brooks, having made a will and hidden it, for some reason or other under his pillow, that will had fallen, through the means related by John O'Neill, into the hands of Mr. Percival Brooks, who had destroyed it and substituted a forged one in its place, which adjudged the whole of Mr. Brooks' millions to himself. It was a terrible and very daring accusation directed against a gentleman who, in spite of his many wild oats sowed in early youth, was a prominent and important figure in Irish high life. All those present were aghast at what they heard, and the whispered comments I could hear around me showed that public opinion, at least, did not uphold Mr. Murray Brooks' daring accusation against his brother. But John O'Neill had not finished his evidence, and Mr. Walter Hibbert had a bit of sensation still up his sleeve. He had, namely, produced a paper, the will proved by Mr. Percival Brooks, and had asked John O'Neill if once again he recognized the paper. "'Certainly, sir,' said John, unhesitatingly. "'That is the one the undertaker found under my poor dead master's pillow, and which I took to Mr. Percival's room immediately. Then the paper was unfolded and placed before the witness. "'Now, Mr. O'Neill, will you tell me if that is your signature?' John looked at it for a moment. Then he said, "'Excuse me, sir,' and produced a pair of spectacles which he carefully adjusted before he again examined the paper. Then he thoughtfully shook his head. "'It don't much look like my writing, sir,' he said at last. "'That is to say,' he added, by way of elucidating the matter, "'it does look like my writing, but then I don't think it is.' "'There was at that moment a look in Mr. Percival Brooks' face,' continued the man in the corner quietly, "'which then and there gave me the whole history of that quarrel, "'that illness of Mr. Brooks, of the will, I, and of the murder of Patrick Weathered, too. "'All I wondered at was how every one of those learned counsel on both sides "'did not get the clue just the same as I did.' but went on arguing, speechifying, cross-examining for nearly a week, until they arrived at the one conclusion which was inevitable from the very first, namely, that the will was a forgery, a gross, clumsy, idiotic forgery, since both John O'Neill and Pat Mooney, the two witnesses, absolutely repudiated the signatures as their own. The only successful bit of calligraphy the forger had done was the signature of old Mr. Brooks. It was a very curious fact, and one which undoubtedly aided the forger in accomplishing his work quickly, that Mr. Weathered the lawyer, having no doubt realized that Mr. Brooks had not many moments in life to spare, had not drawn up the usual engrossed, magnificent document dear to the lawyer heart, but had used for his client's will one of those regular printed forms which can be purchased at any stationer's. Mr. Percival Brooks, of course, flatly denied the serious allegation brought against him. He admitted that the butler had brought him the document the morning after his father's death, and that he, certainly, on glancing at it, had been very much astonished to see that that document was his father's will. Against that he declared that its contents did not astonish him in the slightest degree, 
that he himself knew of the testator's intentions, that he certainly thought his father had entrusted the will to the care of Mr. Wethered, who did all his business for him. "'I only very cursorily glanced at the signature,' he concluded, speaking in a perfectly calm, clear voice. "'You must understand that the thought of forgery was very far from my mind, and that my father's signature is exceedingly well imitated, if indeed it is not his own, which I am not at all prepared to believe. As for the two witnesses' signatures, I don't think I had ever seen them before. I took the document to Messrs. Barkston and Maud, who had often done business for me before, and they assured me that the will was in perfect form and order.' Asked why he had not entrusted the will to his father's solicitors, he replied, for the very simple reason that exactly half an hour before the will was placed in my hands, I had read that Mr. Patrick Weathered had been murdered the night before. Mr. Hibbert, the junior partner, was not personally known to me. After that, for form's sake, a good deal of expert evidence was heard on the subject of the dead man's signature, but that was quite unanimous, and merely went to corroborate what had already been established beyond a doubt, namely, that the will dated February 1st, 1908, was a forgery, and probate of the will dated 1891 was therefore granted to Mr. Murray Brooks, the sole executor mentioned therein. End of chapters 21 and 22
bought a will form, copied Mr. Wetherid's writing, his father's signature, and that of John O'Neill and Pat Mooney. Such a thing might have been planned, arranged, practiced, and ultimately, after a great deal of trouble, successfully carried out, but human intelligence could not grasp the other as a possibility. Still the judge wavered. The eminent K.C. had shaken, but not shattered his belief in the prisoner's guilt. But there was one more point, and this, Ornmore, with the skill of a dramatist, had reserved for the fall of the curtain. He noted every sign in the judge's face. He guessed that his client was not yet absolutely safe. Then only did he produce his last two witnesses. One of them was Mary Sullivan, one of the housemaids in the Fitzwilliam mansion. She had been sent up by the cook at a quarter past four o'clock on the afternoon of February 1st with some hot water, which the nurse had ordered for the master's room. Just as she was about to knock at the door, Mr. Wetherhead was coming out of the room. Mary stopped with the tray in her hand, and at the door Mr. Wetherhead turned and said quite loudly, "'Now don't fret, don't be anxious, do try and be calm. Your will is safe in my pocket. Nothing can change it or alter one word of it but yourself.' It was, of course, a very ticklish point in law whether the housemaid's evidence could be accepted. You see, she was quoting the words of a man since dead, spoken to another man, also dead. There is no doubt that had there been very strong evidence on the other side against Percival Brooks, Mary Sullivan's would have counted for nothing. But, as I told you before, the judge's belief in the prisoner's guilt was already very seriously shaken, and now the final blow aimed at it by Mr. Ornmore shattered his last lingering doubts. Dr. Mulligan, namely, had been placed by Mr. Ornmore into the witness-box. He was a medical man of unimpeachable authority, in fact, absolutely at the head of his profession in Dublin. What he said practically corroborated Mary Sullivan's testimony. He had gone in to see Mr. Brooks at half-past four, and understood from him that his lawyer had just left him. Mr. Brooks, certainly, though terribly weak, was calm and more composed. He was dying from a sudden heart attack, and Dr. Mulligan foresaw the almost immediate end. But he was still conscious, and managed to murmur feebly, I feel much easier in my mind now, doctor, and have made my will. Wethered has been. He's got it in his pocket. It is safe there, safe from that. But the words died on his lips, and after that he spoke but little. He saw his two sons before he died, but hardly knew them or even looked at them. You see, concluded the man in the corner, you see that the prosecution was bound to collapse. Ornmore did not give it a leg to stand on. The will was forged, it is true, forged in the favour of Percival Brooks and of no one else, forged for him and for his benefit. Whether he knew and connived at the forgery was never proved, or, as far as I know, even hinted, but it was impossible to go against all the evidence which pointed that, as far as the act itself was concerned, he at least was innocent. You see, Dr. Mulligan's evidence was not to be shaken. Mary Sullivan's was equally strong." There were two witnesses swearing positively that old Brooks's will was in Mr. Wetherhead's keeping when that gentleman left the Fitzwilliam mansion at a quarter past four. At five o'clock in the afternoon the lawyer was found dead in Phoenix Park. Between a quarter past four and eight o'clock in the evening Percival Brooks never left the house. That was subsequently proved by Ornmore up to the hilt and beyond a doubt. Since the will found under old Brooks's pillow was a forged will, where then was the will he did make? and which Wetherhead carried away with him in his pocket. "'Stolen, of course,' said Polly, "'by those who murdered and robbed him. It may have been of no value to them, but they naturally would destroy it, lest it might prove a clue against them.' "'Then you think it was mere coincidence?' he asked excitedly. "'What?' 
that Weathered was murdered and robbed at the very moment that he carried the will in his pocket, whilst another was being forged in its place? It certainly would be very curious if it were a coincidence, she said musingly. Very, he repeated with biting sarcasm, whilst nervously his bony fingers played with the inevitable bit of string. Very curious, indeed. Just think of the whole thing. There was the old man, and all his wealth, and two sons, one to whom he is devoted, and the other with whom he does nothing but quarrel. One day there is another of these quarrels, but more violent, more terrible than any that have previously occurred, with the result that the father, heartbroken by it all, has an attack of apoplexy, and practically dies of a broken heart. After that he alters his will, and subsequently a will is proved which turns out to be a forgery. Now everybody, police, press, and public alike, at once jump to the conclusion that, as Percival Brooks benefits by that forged will, Percival Brooks must be the forger. "'Seek for him whom the crime benefits is your own axiom,' argued the girl. "'I beg your pardon? Percival Brooks benefited to the tune of two million pounds.' "'I beg your pardon. He did nothing of the sort. He was left with less than half the share that his younger brother inherited.' "'Now, yes, but that was a former will, and—' "'And that forged will was so clumsily executed, "'the signature so carelessly imitated, "'that the forgery was bound to come to light. "'Did that never strike you?' "'Yes, but—' "'There is no but,' he interrupted. "'It was all as clear as daylight to me from the very first. "'The quarrel with the old man, which broke his heart, "'was not with his eldest son, with whom he was used to quarrelling, "'but with the second son whom he idolised, in whom he believed.' Don't you remember how John O'Neill heard the words liar and deceit? Percival Brooks had never deceived his father. His sins were all on the surface. Murray had led a quiet life, had pandered to his father and fawned upon him, until, like most hypocrites, he at last got found out. Who knows what ugly gambling debt or debt of honor suddenly revealed to old Brooks was the cause of that last and deadly quarrel? You remember that it was Percival who remained beside his father and carried him up to his room, where was Murray throughout that long and painful day, when his father lay dying, he, the idolized son, the apple of the old man's eye? You never hear his name mentioned as being present there all that day. But he knew that he had offended his father mortally, and that his father meant to cut him off with a shilling. He knew that Mr. Weathered had been sent for, that Weathered left the house soon after four o'clock. And here the cleverness of the man comes in. Having lain in wait for Weathered and knocked him on the back of the head with a stick, he could not very well make that will disappear altogether. There remained the faint chance of some other witnesses knowing that Mr. Brooks had made a fresh will. Mr. Weathered's partner, his clerk, or one of the confidential servants in the house. Therefore, a will must be discovered after the old man's death. Now Murray Brooks was not an expert forger. It takes years of training to become that. A forged will executed by himself would be sure to be found out. Yes, that's it, sure to be found out. The forgery would be palpable let it be palpable, and then it will be found out, branded as such, and the original will of 1891, so favourable to the young Blackguard's interests, would be held as valid. Was it devilry or merely additional caution which prompted Murray to pen that forged will so glaringly in Percival's favour? It is impossible to say. Anyhow, it was the cleverest touch in that marvellously devised crime. To plan that evil deed was great, to execute it was easy enough, he had several hours' leisure in which to do it. Then, at night, it was simplicity itself to slip the document under the dead man's pillow. Sacrilege causes no shudder to such natures as Murray Brooks. The rest of the drama you know already. But Percival Brooks? 
the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. There was no evidence against him. But the money! Surely the scoundrel does not have the enjoyment of it still. No, he enjoyed it for a time, but he died about three months ago, and forgot to take the precaution of making a will, so his brother Percival has got the business after all. If you ever go to Dublin, I should order some of Brooks Bacon, if I were you. It is very good. Chapter 24 An Unparalleled Outrage "'Do you care for the seaside?' asked the man in the corner when he had finished his lunch. "'I don't mean the seaside at Ostend or Trouville, but honest English seaside, with negro minstrels, three-shilling excursionists, and dirty, expensive furnished apartments, where they charge you a shilling for lighting the hall gas on Sundays, and sixpence on other evenings. Do you care for that?' "'I prefer the country.' "'Ah, perhaps it is preferable. Personally, I only liked one of our English seaside resorts once, and that was for a week.' when Edward Skinner was up before the magistrate, charged with what was known as the Brighton Outrage. I don't know if you remember that memorable day in Brighton, memorable for that elegant town which deals more in amusements than mysteries, when Mr. Francis Morton, one of its most noted residents, disappeared. Yes, disappeared as completely as any vanishing lady in a music hall. He was wealthy, had a fine house, servants, a wife and children, and he disappeared. There was no getting away from that. Mr. Francis Morton lived with his wife in one of the large houses in Sussex Square, at the Kemptown end of Brighton. Mrs. Morton was well known for her Americanisms, her swagger dinner-parties, and beautiful Paris gowns. She was the daughter of one of the many American millionaires, I think her father was a Chicago pork-butcher, who conveniently provide wealthy wives for English gentlemen, and she had married Mr. Francis Morton a few years ago, and brought him her quarter of a million, for no other reason but that she fell in love with him. He was neither good-looking nor distinguished. In fact, he was one of those men who seemed to have city stamped all over their person. He was a gentleman of very regular habits, going up to London every morning on business, and returning every afternoon by the husband's train. So regular was he in these habits that all the servants at the Sussex Square house were betrayed into actual gossip over the fact that on Wednesday, March 17th, the master was not home for dinner. Hales, the butler, remarked that the mistress seemed a bit anxious and didn't eat much food. The evening wore on, and Mr. Morton did not appear. At nine o'clock the young footman was dispatched to the station to make inquiries whether his master had been seen there in the afternoon, or whether, which heaven forbid, there had been an accident on the line. The young man interviewed two or three porters, the bookstall boy and the ticket clerk. All were agreed that Mr. Morton did not go up to London during the day. No one had seen him within the precincts of the station. There certainly had been no accident reported either on the up or down line. But the morning of the 18th came, with its initial postman's knock, but neither Mr. Morton nor any sign or news from him. Mrs. Morton, who evidently had spent a sleepless night, for she looked sadly changed and haggard, sent a wire to the hall porter at the large building in Cannon Street, where her husband had his office. An hour later she had the reply. Not seen Mr. Morton all day yesterday, not here today. By the afternoon everyone in Brighton knew that a fellow resident had mysteriously disappeared from or in the city. A couple of days, then another, elapsed, and still no sign of Mr. Morton. The police were doing their best. The gentleman was so well known in Brighton, as he had been a resident two years, that it was not difficult to firmly establish the one fact that he had not left the city, since no one saw him in the station on the morning of the 17th, nor at any time since then. Mild excitement prevailed throughout the town. At first the newspapers took the matter somewhat jocosely. 
Where is Mr. Morton? was the usual placard on the evening's contents bills. But after three days had gone by, and the worthy Brighton resident was still missing, while Mrs. Morton was seen to look more haggard and careworn every day, mild excitement gave place to anxiety. There were vague hints now as to foul play. The news had leaked out that the missing gentleman was carrying a large sum of money on the day of his disappearance. There were also vague rumours of a scandal not unconnected with Mrs. Morton herself, and her own past history, which in her anxiety for her husband she had been forced to reveal to the detective inspector in charge of the case. Then, on Saturday, the news which the late evening papers contained was this. Acting on certain information received, the police today forced an entrance into one of the rooms of Russell House, a high-class furnished apartment on the King's Parade, and there they discovered our missing distinguished townsman, Mr. Francis Morton, who had been robbed and subsequently locked up in that room since Wednesday the 17th. When discovered, he was in the last stages of inanition. He was tied into an armchair with ropes, a thick wool shawl had been wound round his mouth, and it is a positive marvel that, left thus without food and very little air, the unfortunate gentleman survived the horrors of these four days of incarceration. He has been conveyed to his residence in Sussex Square, and we are pleased to say that Dr. Mellish, who is in attendance, has declared his patient to be out of serious danger, and that, with care and rest, he will be soon quite himself again. At the same time our readers will learn, with unmixed satisfaction, that the police of our city, with their usual acuteness and activity, have already discovered the identity and whereabouts of the cowardly ruffian who committed this unparalleled outrage. End of chapters 23 and 24「ビッグアップ Sunday 